read the text um, for Pastor Emilio's sermon. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read the first six verses. Paul says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the same confidence which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You may be seated. Okay, very good. It's good to be back. Uh, you're probably wondering, well, where did you go? I spoke at a church um, yesterday in Fort Worth, and it's a great time to be around other churches, other believers, and uh, that's always a real blessing and an encouraging thing. But I tell you what, I love coming home to my church, <laughs> and I love preaching for our people here. So it's a joy to be with you guys today and to look at... Uh, the second part of what we've entitled previously, this section of scripture, Ministry, Warfare, and Paul. Uh, ministry, Warfare, and Paul. And uh, today we're going to finish up these verses that we started last week. And uh, I hope that uh, the Lord will just really encourage us today as we listen to his word. Let's pray uh, one more time together for his a blessing on his word today. Father, we do thank you that you have given us uh, your word, your truth. Lord, and we, we're especially grateful as we consider uh, just the darkness and the deception that our culture is in. Just the fact that the whole world, according to 1 John chapter 5, the whole world is under the influence of the wicked one. And But God, you have shown in our hearts your love. You have opened our minds. You have enlightened our hearts to your truth. And we're grateful for the discernment that we have through your spirit, that we are able, as Paul says, to appraise all things. We see the truth. We see things for what they really are. And so we're grateful that you have given us discernment. Let us grow, as Paul says in Philippians 1. Let us continue to grow in our love, but also in our discernment. For we know, Lord, that the days are evil. The days are perilous. The days are difficult and that your your spirit long ago had prophesied that that uh, evil times would come and certainly lord like with every generation but our generation today we are in perilous times and evil days and we just pray that you would equip us and help us and help us to be better equipped on how to how to navigate through life's temptations and life's trials and all of the obstacles that the world may set before us. 
And I pray especially for your church as much of what Paul says here pertains to the success and to the purity of the local church. We pray for that purity for our own church, that you would protect it, that you would keep it from harm. Protect it, Lord, from false teaching, false doctrine. Protect it from heretical movements, from heretical influence. Protect it from any adversaries, from from any opponents that would come and try to unsettle us. And protect us, Lord, from any inward division among ourselves so that we don't do, as Paul says to the Galatians, that we would never bite and, and devour one another and so consume one another. Father, we thank you that your heart for us is unity, and that in your eyes, it is a beautiful thing for your people to dwell in unity. We thank you and we bless you. We pray a special blessing over our time, and we thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it in our hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, before we looked at Paul's challenge and the warfare that he was engaged in, We looked a little bit at the sort of the mindset that Paul was under when he engaged in spiritual warfare, the types of weaponry that he possessed, the spiritual weaponry that he possessed. And now Paul is going to give us really the target of his attack, the target of his attack. So I've got one point, and that's what it is, the target of Paul's attack in spiritual warfare. But I have four points under that. You know I can't just do one point. But i got four points under that major theme, that major heading at. This is what Paul is going to zero in on. This is what Paul is going to, like a laser-guided missile, he's going to go after. And that is the fallacious nature or or the distorted or the depraved nature of fallen reason. And uh, if you remember anything about the context last week, you remember that Paul's opponents are more than anything attacking his conduct. They're attacking the things that he did. They're attacking what they were looking at as inconsistencies in his ministry, inconsistencies in his letters. The idea that he was sort of going back and forth on his word, that he was vacillating between opinions and going back and forth between commitments. They were saying that Paul was fickle. Later on in the letter, they'll say that Paul is hard-hearted, that Paul is almost prideful and presumptuous with the church because he would not receive financial blessing from them. Oh, Paul's fighting on all sorts of fronts. And, uh, you know, as I was looking into the background of this passage, uh, mentioned a little bit last week about this, but scholars are so divided as to the precise identity of Paul's opponents that they don't know. They're, they're divided on this issue. Most or the majority believe that it was none other than the Judaizers from Jerusalem. But I think that it is, by the inspiration of God's Spirit, it is purposefully ambiguous. It is purposely ambiguous so that it can have such a universal and broad application for the church in all generation and in all circumstances that can relate to what Paul is going through here. And so, like all of other, all the rest of Scripture, this is for our instruction. This is for our teaching. This is for our edification. This is for us to glean from Paul's method of spiritual warfare for our own lives, both individually and corporately as a church. And so Paul is going to zero in here on the thoughts or the theology, we could even say, of his opponents. They attack his conduct. He attacks their theology. He he attacks their thought process. And uh, notice the connection, though, right? 
all of your conduct is informed by your doctrine. All your deeds are motivated by what you believe, your doctrine. That's why theology is so important. If you have a certain theological position that is off or it's unbiblical or it's heretical, it will affect the way that you live. Just like the Judaizers who held to a very stringent view of the law, legalistic view of the law, well, guess what? They became legalists. And they were trying to bind people under unbearable burdens themselves. But uh, just to see this here, Paul is going to give us just this, 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 this incredible anatomy of fallen reason, sinful reason. And um, Paul views the whole mind of man as tainted by sin. I suppose we should point that out quickly before we jump into our first thing. I'm, I'm thinking about here, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And Paul is going to use the word speculations right here in this text. It's a different form of the word. It's a compound word here in Romans, but it's essentially the same idea. This uh, false reason, this sophistry, some have called. And also, Ephesians chapter 4, again, focusing in on the thought life, the mind of the unbeliever of, and of unbelieving worldviews. It says in Ephesians 4.17, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind describing the mind of an unbeliever as worthless. That's what the word futility means. It's bane, it's worthless, it's fallen, it's empty, it's devoid of truth. And so, Paul gives us a scathing theology of what is known as the noetic effects of sin uh, on the mind of man. Uh, that, that, that sin has so permeated uh, uh, the, the person, uh, the, the man and the, the, the being of man, that every aspect of man is polluted and corrupted by sin, including his mind, including his thought life. Uh, but the very first thing he points out then about fallen reason is, number one, that it is fallacious. And I get that from the word speculation. Speculation. Again, look with me again at verse 4. Because there, he, he, he sort of sets this whole thing up, and he says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. This is the purpose of them. For the destruction of fortresses, and if you're reading along in your Greek Bible, as I know some of you will, okay, the words speculation belong to verse 4. But most English translations grouped it with verse 5. I think just trying to keep the thought together. Unless you have a translation maybe like the Net Bible. The Net Bible also puts it in verse 4. But suffice it to say, he's linking and connecting all these thoughts together. And the first thing that he expresses or he describes this idea of a fortress, which we looked at last week as that stronghold, that, that unbelieving stronghold that the, that the unbeliever tries to erect around himself to barricade himself against God and ultimately through his thought life, through his doctrine, through his worldview, through his philosophy, whatever it may be. And here he says, we are destroying speculations. The word speculation just means that which is, that which is false. It speaks of false argument. It, it speaks of logical fallacies committed in argumentation. It's an amazing word. 
He's literally dismantling the whole unbelieving worldview, and he begins by saying, first of all, the thought life of an unbeliever is false. It's patently false. Every idea they have, ultimately, unless it is taken captive to obey Christ and his lordship, will always fail miserably. It will never be truly true. At least not without the Christian worldview. We know that because we're studying apologetics right now in Sunday school. And today was such a great uh, a lesson on apologetics because we got into the noetic effects of sin on the mind. But uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 just to prove this. That uh, an unbeliever is at a great disadvantage when it comes to talking about the things of God. I was at a debate uh, in Southern California several years ago. And uh, after the uh, opponents, they were, they were debating uh, the doctrine of annihilationism, one of them claimed to be an agnostic. I don't know what his interest was in debating Christian doctrine. Well, one of the debaters called him out at the very beginning of the debate and said, wait a minute, don't you classify yourself as agnostic? And he says, well, yes, I do. He says, well, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, you can't know anything, so why should we proceed with this debate? Uh, since you can't spiritually appraise anything. And look at what this verse says. It says just that. He says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Well, we know that. A man in his own fallen natural state does not accept the things of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised. That word appraised means that you make a critical assessment. He says, but he who is spiritual, he appraises all things. Now watch this amazing phrase. And yet, he himself is appraised by no one. Now what in the world does that mean? I think it means something like this. No one has an adequate explanation for the worldview of the believer. The world cannot adequately explain and, 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 and define theistic thought. They can summarize, they can try to represent it the best that they can, but they actually don't know it. They can't appraise it, they can't understand it, they can't discern it. And that's because of sin. Sin renders man's mind delusional, deceptive. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 10, thir uh, 3, describing idolaters, he says, the customs of the people are a delusion. He goes on to say later in that very same chapter, every man is stupid. Every man is stupid. He is without reason, in other words. And he goes on to describe how that the stupidity he's talking about is idolatry. They carve down a tree. They cook food with half the wood. And with the rest of the wood, they carve out their God. That's pretty stupid. If your God consists of nothing more than wood for the fire, wood for the flames, it's not a, very, uh, not a very powerful God, is he? And that's what uh, unbelieving, the unbelieving worldview is. It is fallacious, it is foolish, it's the complete opposite of what 1 Corinthians is talking about. They are actually the foolish ones. And we are told in Scripture exactly how and how not to answer a fool, either according to his folly or against his own folly, not according to his folly. So Paul and his uh, weapons that he's envisioning here have everything to do with argumentation. 
I just think that's amazing for a culture where we are told over and over again, don't argue with people. Everything that Paul is talking about here is that which he seeks to prove through convincing arguments and dismantling unbelieving worldviews. That word there, to destroy speculations, that word literally means that you dismantle something bit by bit. So you're deconstructing unbiblical worldviews bit by bit. You are demolishing like a wrecking crew going in to destroy a building one step at a time. And you got to do it right. You know that when they demolish a building or they blow one up, I mean, a lot of care has to go into that. It has to be done in a controlled environment. I just saw a building that they tried to do this, and it failed. I think it was Russia or somewhere. And it destroyed a lot of the buildings around it because they didn't demolish it right. In the same way, you and I, we have a certain protocol in apologetics. That's why we study apologetics. That's why it's important to know these things. Because we don't want to harm the person, but we do want to demolish his worldview. That's what Scripture calls us to do. It is not just a, the fact that fallen man and his reason is false. That's a very strong starting point, right? You've got to begin right there. The Christian doesn't have the option to begin, as so many do, natural theologians, with the possibility that unbelieving worldviews could be true. And so they come to the evidence, they say, on neutral ground. We're both going to see who's right. You know, a Christian has an obligation, first and foremost, to sanctify God in his heart, to sanctify the Lord Jesus in his heart, to set him apart as Lord. And once you've done that, then, Peter says, you, be you can begin to give a defense for the hope that lies in you. You don't begin to defend the faith in order to see whether or not Christ is Lord. That would be the opposite of the biblical worldview. But the second description is this. Not only is it a vain speculation, patently false position, but it is also rebellious in nature. You want to talk about the noetic effects of sin on the mind. This is the extent. It's not just that sin has polluted, God's, or polluted the mind of man, has rendered him foolish. More than that, it is active. It is rebellious. It is radical, meaning it permeates every aspect of his mind. It creates rebellion and hostility between him and God. We know that from the scriptures. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Man is hostile to God. They're at enmity. Romans chapter 1, verse 30. Man is in a hatred relationship with God. He hates God, at least the God of the Bible. He may pay lip service to the God of his own imagination, the man upstairs. Tons of people will do that. Oh, I respect, I respect the man upstairs. I fear God. Oh, absolutely. I'll never forget after the Lakers won the championship, the last championship, um, which I know you're all rooting for all the time. Uh, one of the players says, yeah, you know, I can't, I can't thank God enough for what he did for me. I can't thank God enough, he said, for... He gave me a second chance, and he was going on and on and on about God. And at the very end, he says, so I'll see all of you at the club tonight, right? Well, he thought he was giving lip service to God there. He thought he really had, you know, he thought he was really uh, God's friend. 
sad thing is reality. He was not God's friend. He's at enmity with God. God's host, you know, God's, uh, he's hostile to God. But more importantly, God is hostile towards him. That's what's really important there is that man at enmity with God puts himself in a position where God is angry with him, where God is his enemy and God has set himself against his enemies. That's a terrifying prospect. But look at the next thing here, this rebellion. Every lofty thing. This is, a, this is the, the next part of what he dismantles. Every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Against the knowledge of God. The true knowledge of God. Orthodoxy. True Christianity. Whenever anything or any argument or any position or any perspective or any philosophy that you hear on television, on, on Fox News or CNN or MSN or whatever, if it is not in keeping with the knowledge of God, it is lofty, meaning it is arrogant, it is prideful, and it has set itself in opposition to God. It is an affront to God. It is an affront to God. And Paul tells us this is why man is desperately in need of special revelation. He needs the wisdom of God because his own wisdom will never teach him the true knowledge of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. God has done it this way. This is designed by God. God has he has frustrated the, 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 the mind of the unbeliever. It is utterly frustrated. It is hindered. He has cut him off. He cannot arrive at the knowledge of God on his own. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, sense in the wisdom of God. Another way of saying that is by God's wisdom. He says, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. Or another way you can render the Greek there is through the foolishness of preaching. I probably favor that translation. To save those who believe. But anyway, back up. It is through its own wisdom that the world will never know God. This is why the pre-Socratic philosophers... Way before Plato, for hundreds of years, never came to know God. This is why Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, and this is why Parmenides and Heraclitus and all the rest of them, for millennia, never came to know God. And this is why for that whole period of the Enlightenment period, that, that, that all of the philosophers, all of the skeptics, all of the know-it-alls, never came to know God. As brilliant as Immanuel Kant was, and as much as he claimed to believe in an impersonal God, notice he never came to know God, even though he came to give God lip service. Anthony Flew, recently a professor from Yale, died, and for, for his whole life he was an atheist. Eventually, he became a theist. What was the problem? He did not come to know the God of the Bible because he came to the conclusion that there is a God based on high probability, based on that he saw design in the universe. Who cares what the Bible says, right? 
I see that the universe, yes, it, it exhibits some sort of design. I don't know what kind of design. I mean, it could have been created by the flying spaghetti monster, but it is designed. That's not what the Bible is trying to get people to believe. It's not just about believing that there is a God. It's about believing in the God of the Bible. Even in Acts chapter 17, when Paul, uh, Paul goes into the, the, the Areopagus there in Athens and he debates the Epicureans, the Stoic philosophers, all of them, and he's preaching to them what? That there is a God? No! It says the reason they brought him up there was because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He had no other desire. Paul was not there just to prove that there might be a God. No, he says, Jesus and the resurrection. And that's why they persecuted him, because of that. The man's reason, because it is fallen, is hostile. It is rebellious against God. It is like King Sennacherib from Assyria who doesn't know who he's offending. But guess what? The prophet Isaiah told him who he was offending. He, in 2 Kings, you find the dialogue. It's in chapter 19, verse 22. He says, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised up your voice and haughtily, haughtily lifted up your eyes? It is against the Holy One of Israel. See, when we talk to people about their unbelieving worldview, we are there to tell them the God that they're rebelling against. It's not the God of your imagination. It's not the God that you think is going to judge you according to your standard. It's not the God of America. It's not the American God. It's not the, it's not the, you know, the grandfather in the sky that's just going to, you know, he's just going to wink at your sin. It is the Holy One of Israel. That's the one with whom you have to do. Now, I want to bring you back into the exegesis of this text, the arguments that Paul is referring to here in the immediate context. We don't want to miss this, but it has to do with Paul's apostleship. If you've done any study in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians for that matter, you know that his apostleship is being undermined. His authority as a minister, as a pastor, and as an apostle is what is really being attacked. They're undermining his authority. They're trying to breach the unity between Paul and the church. And so all of these arguments, all of these developments have to do with Paul reestablishing his apostolic authority in the church. Why is that important? Because if you, if you move away from the apostles, you move away from the gospel. If you move away from Paul, it's a departure from the gospel. And he wanted them to stay in that apostolic tradition. That apostolic tradition. This is why it was so important in Galatians chapter uh, 1 and 2 that Paul went to the apostles. He presented his doctrine before them, and they affirmed that his doctrine was true. And even then, he says, it wasn't so much that they added anything to me. My gospel came from Jesus. My gospel was directly given to me by a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. But when they moved away from Paul, if they moved away from Paul, they were moving away from the gospel. And so at the very essence of this is a church's survival. And this is why Paul is so adamant. Isn't it amazing just the aggressive language here? I mean, you'd almost be a little bit embarrassed to read this in front of an unbeliever. 
as you're witnessing to them there at work, um, well, actually, what I need to do is demolish your worldview, and I have to use my weapons, and we're in warfare right now, and I'm going to destroy your speculations, and I'm going to take you captive to obey Christ. Don't you want to become a Christian? <laughs> Paul is going on the offensive here because the survival of the local church is at stake. That's why. Look at verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 4, just to see just how these false teachers are bringing their attacks, their heresy, and they're undermining the unity and the, the survival of this church. It says, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, and then he says, you bear this beautifully, a statement that might, dis might confuse you, but that it's spoken in irony. He's basically saying, you put up with this? You shouldn't. But that's what's at stake here. The preaching of another Jesus, the receiving of a different spirit, and the accepting of a different gospel. Yeah, this is, this is big time problems in Corinth. And Paul is ready to do away with them. If you back up to verse 3, you can see again, in his rebellion, man is so easily led astray from the purity of the gospel. He says, I'm afraid that as, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. And that, just not, that does not mean, hey, brother, keep it simple. I've heard that interpretation. It's totally false. He's not just saying... You know, just keep it simple. Don't get all into theology and doctrine and all of that. Just, you know, stay simple. Have a childlike faith. No, no, no. Actually, the Bible teaches that we are to be on a completely separate trajectory. We're not to remain children. We're to grow up. We're not to remain on the milk. We're to pursue meat. We're, we're to go on to maturity. There are some of us that ought to be teachers by now. And so... Paul is talking about simplicity and purity as it regards the orthodoxy of the gospel, of the gospel. Man has hidden himself away and surrounded himself. This is the imagery that Paul is giving here with this fortress language. He is barricading himself with all of his false ideas, false theologies, false postures. And he does this with a prideful heart. He does this with haughtiness in his heart. He does this with a, a fist lifted up to heaven. Lifted up to heaven. Paul says in Ephesians that he speaks of the ignorance that is in the Gentiles. That ignorance doesn't mean innocence. It means that the ignorance is a result of the corruption of sin. And they are anything but innocent. But they willfully reject the knowledge of the truth. The result is that when a person sets himself against God in this way, God often gives the person up. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Sometimes you see this very thing pertaining to a person, pertaining to a group of people, and then even pertaining to a whole nation, a whole culture that God has just chosen to give up and let them go down their godless way into all sorts of incomprehensible immorality. You want to talk about God giving someone up? How about in the days of Noah? 
when, the, when man's minds were raging with uncontrollable evil, so much so that every thought they had, every imagination of the heart was only evil and it was persistently evil. And God says, I'm going to drown every single person, man, woman, and child as a result of their sin. God is teaching us from Genesis to Revelation just how much he hates sin and the fact that he can't be in the presence of sin. Achan, for his sin, was punished. But his sin affected the whole camp, and thus it merited a corporate punishment so that his family was put to death. His children were put to death. They were piled up and burned. And you know what we think? Immediately we think, how is that fair? When we should think, wow, is God holy? Instead of questioning God, we should tremble before God. Instead of asking, how can God do that? We should say, how is it that God hasn't done that to me? I deserve to be stoned and burned like Achan. And it is a miracle of grace that I'm still here today. That's what we should be in awe at. Not the fact that children died. The fact that all children should die. Because from the womb, it is all about self. And from the womb, you begin to develop those deviant and depraved impulses that causes the smallest child to lie, no matter how cute he or she is. Paul Washer said, if your infant had the strength of an 18-year-old man, he would climb over his stroller, grab a knife, stab you to death for the bottle that he's begging for. That's how depraved man is. That's the kind of depravity that you see in the Word of God. Speaking lies, going astray, the poison of asps is under their tongue. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Not only is man's reason fallen and rebellious, but it also wants to be autonomous. And that's why I believe, if you look at what Paul says next, he says not only does he... Not only is he destroying every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, but look at his next strategy. The next strategy is that he takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought has to be taken into subjection to Christ. That's what he's doing. That's the way that Paul will argue. He will not let you get away with one false notion of who he is, of what the ministry is all about, of what... Christianity is all about, about what the church should be and how it should be ran. <laughs> I mean, what a scathing indictment on the modern church and all of the worldly modern influence in, the, in, in, in today's church. And I'm not talking about using PowerPoint, but I am talking about trying to impress people with the wrong things, trying to impress people with technology instead of theology. Oh, it's a, it's, it, it is a wasteland. Let's just face it. It is a wasteland out there. I'm getting to the point where it's like, yeah, that church is this bad and that bad, and they do this and they do that, and they play secular songs, and they do this, and, and they've had hot rods on stage, and they, they've got pastors swinging from the, from the rafters and blah, 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 blah. And they've got beds on stage, and they're doing 40 days of intimacy and all this hogwash. And I just think of what Jeremiah says. My people love to have it that way. 
There needs, there, there's a revival that's needed today in the evangelical church, major revival, and it's got to begin with a conviction of sin and an understanding of the holiness of God and the purity of the gospel. It has to begin there. I know it seems impossible, doesn't it? It just seems impossible. Some of these mega churches and all the millions of dollars that they have, it's like, it's like they've got the machine moving, and now they can't stop. They can't put the brakes on if you tried. You go in there, and you preach one sound sermon, and the whole church will clear out. And you know what I say? Let them clear out. Let them clear out. Preach in such a way that the elect will stay and the reprobate will leave. Where is that kind of preaching today in our churches and Paul's kind of preaching, and Paul's type of thinking, that every thought, and when he uses the word thought, he is very, very, very intentional about it. It's the word noema, which literally means that which man schemes in his heart. It's not just an idea that pops into your brain. No, no, no. It's actually a design. You have fashioned something in your mind that you intend to fulfill show you a cross-reference to that word, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, to see the force of that word. Paul uses it with respect to our own adversary. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his what? Thoughts. But here, the translation is schemes to draw out the implications of noemah that word. It is the schemes of man, the evil, wicked schemes of man that Paul is saying we must capture those designs that people have crafted against the, the good and the well-being of the local church. We must capture those schemes and dominate those schemes and bring those schemes under subjection. And ultimately, we need to punish those who are thinking such Things. We need to bring them under the precinct of God's authority, subjugate them to the lordship of Christ. As Isaiah says, 45 verse 23, quoted in Philippians chapter 2, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. And Paul is saying, in the church, we do this. The church is a collection of people that are under submission. If you don't like authority, then you won't like the church. Because every person in the church, every member, has covenanted together to be under God's authority. We willfully bow our knee. We willfully confess with our lips that Jesus is our Lord. Even though we don't always live like it, we do confess our allegiance to it. Sadly, at the end of the age, at the great judgment, the judgment to end all judgments, this verse will be realized, but breathtakingly, it will be a forced submission for the unbelieving person, for the unbeliever. They will be compelled by the judgment and holiness and wrath of God to bow their knee 
and to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, no matter how much they will blaspheme him on the parapletes of hell and raise their fist and voice against them, they will acknowledge his lordship. And that's what believers are. We are those that God has subdued, our wills conquered, our rebellious hearts overcome. That's why I wrote that song, Overcome Us. Lord, however the song goes. I don't even know how my song goes, but it was, just a, it was just a desire to express the idea of, yes, 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 I want to be overwhelmed by God. My rebel heart needs to be brought under subjection. Let's look at the last point, which I have entitled, the ecclesiastical nature of fallen reason. Just a fancy way of saying this has to do with the church. Why? Because of the language of punishment. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Well, all disobedience, what do you mean, like everywhere? There's disobedience everywhere. I mean, you go to Walmart, there's disobedience. You go to work, people are disobedient to Christ. You turn on the television, you get involved in politics, you get involved in culture. There's disobedience at every single level. Are we supposed to punish it? No. Paul cares nothing of punishing the world. Let the world be the world. Let Caesar have what Caesar wants. The church, however, is God's elite, sacred society where his law and his dominion rule supreme. The lost art of church discipline, the lost spiritual discipline of church discipline and excommunication is sorely missing today. And so many are so fearful to engage in this, fear of getting sued, fear of no one wanting to come, fear of being labeled legalistic, fear of being labeled old-fashionistic and puritanistic, and, and, and on and on and on. Well, we do church discipline in our church, and we have engaged in excommunication, and no, it's not nice, and no, it's not pretty, but I tell you what, it needs to be done for the health of the church. And Paul is saying, in essence, he is ready to arrive in Corinth and to execute church discipline if he needs to do it. And he will do it. He will do it. But he does not mean that we ought to go out into the world and try to punish unbelievers. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because I think this is important. You and I have no obligation whatsoever to go into our culture, go into the world, and try to overthrow the institutions of our country or this world or the systems of this world, our sphere of authority ends at the doors of the church. We don't go around trying to punish unbelievers, excommunicate drug dealers and prostitutes and crooked politicians. God has ordained that the that the, that the legal system would take care of that. There are enough of a minister of God that they will punish the evildoer, and God has entrusted by his common grace that that is who takes care of those types of issues. But in the church, look at this. He says in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with any immoral people. I did not mean 
I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindler or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you that you would not associate, that you would not associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, nor even to eat with such a one. And then look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? He, does, he says, do you, not, do you not judge those who are within the church? He expects them to know this. But God, who is, but, but those who are outside, God is going to judge. And what is our obligation? Our obligation is covenantal. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. That's our obligation. Our own ecclesiastical society. This is where God's jurisdiction is for us to operate under. When Jesus gave instruction on discipline and punishment, it was for the church, Matthew 18. It was not for us to try to, you know, enforce God's law and God's punishment in the world. I can't go around following, you know, drug dealers on the streets, prostitutes on the streets, and going up to them and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to punish you for that. No, our sphere is mainly having to do with the church. Now, that doesn't mean we don't influence the culture. That doesn't mean we don't get involved. That doesn't mean we, do, we can't do things like what William Wilberforce did when he ended the slave trade. I know that. But Paul's concern is for the, for the exactment of punishment in the local church. In the local church. And so... That's why he urges them. If you go back to 2 Corinthians 10, he urges them. I ask them when I am present, I don't need to be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. So what does he want here? What's the last idea here? Paul wants the church to stand in solidarity with him. He wants to link arms with the church and make sure when I get there, I want to be united with you. I want to make sure that you guys are in a posture of unity so that when I get there, I'm not fighting you and the false teachers or his opponents or whoever they were. He wants to make sure that his judgments can stand with the majority of the church. And that's why he praises them earlier on in chapter 2 that the majority of people had inflicted, I think, church discipline on a disobedient brother that needed to happen. It needed to happen. And there was repentance, and there was revival because of that. The church was revived. It was, it was protected. It was nourished. It was built up, and it was edified. And so Paul is saying, look, I don't want to be bold in this way. It's amazing for Paul. Paul is an amazing person. Do you know what he suffered in ministry? I don't think any of us can even tell. Do you know how many pains and aches and do you know how many anxious nights, sleepless nights, he says? Do you know how many trials he underwent? Do you know how much concern? I bet you if a board of ministry and, and certified and, and degreed and, 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 and you know, psychologists that, that evaluate the, the mental condition of a minister, I bet you they would have said, Paul, you need to take a break. 
You need a vacation. You of anyone, you might even want to retire. Go golfing, you know. <laughs> Chill out, you know. Ministry is overwhelming you, man. You're, you know what I mean? Don't let ministry become, you know, they would have used every name in the book, every ther therapeutic method to try to tell Paul, hey, you, you know, don't burn out. Burn out! He's going to go be beheaded. He doesn't care about burnout. He wants to burn out. He wants to be spent. He says that in, in Philippians. He says, I'm ready to be poured out like an offering, like, a, like, like, a, like you pour out the laver at the, at the tabernacle. I want to be poured out as an act of worship for the church. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care if it costs me every ounce of my blood. I want to strive and labor and fight, and, and, and I want a pure church. I want to present you on that day as a pure virgin bride. And I don't care what it costs. Tell the psychologist to go home. I'm going to keep laboring. And he tells Timothy the same thing. You know, as pastors today, we're not off the hook either. How do I know that? Because he passed on that same work ethic to all the other ministers around him. Timothy, suffer with me as a good soldier. How'd you like to be a part of that ministry team? Be invited to suffer. That's what ministry is. It is one episode of suffering after another. And the more you try to do things biblically, the more opposition, the more warfare, the more the obstacles will intensify. I really believe that. Now, I hope they don't intensify too much. I'm not asking for trouble. I'm just saying this is the nature of biblical ministry in the local church but the good news is this. The good news, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, is that God has given us, 4 to 7, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We are well equipped. We are well, we, we, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the, the biblical resources that we have at our disposal through God's Word and in, by the power of His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, help us to tap into those resources at whatever level. For our own life, first of all, individually, there is a battle. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. Sometimes our walk with you seems more like a fight than a walk. But nevertheless, you have equipped us for our fight of faith. Whether it's in the home, in the family, in the marriage, you have given us all things. You have given us everything we need for life and for godliness. You've given us everything that we need to be godly people at home. You've given us everything that we need to be godly husbands, godly wives, godly fathers, godly mothers. And we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would help us and convict us not to neglect the weapons and the resources that you've given us. And in the church, help us to be good pastors, good members, good deacons, 
good servants, good fellow workers with one another, good disciples, good believers. Help us to take up the armor of God so that we, every single believer here, that we would be able to stand in the evil day. We thank you. Oh, Father, we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.